Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Baptism is one of these subjects that, pardon the pun, you get in deep water pretty quickly. And, and, and the best evidence for that is the word, English word baptism is literally a transliteration. When they first started translating the Bible into English, which uh, to begin with was a crime, punishable by death, which I know to us today it's like, wow, that was, uh, how in the world the church ever got the idea that putting the, the Bible into the common language could be harmful, I don't know. But in that translating process, transliteration, and this is the Roberts Doctrine, transliteration is the coward's way out. Baptism means this, because that's what you do when you translate. You take the meaning of one word and you explain it. And sometimes for some words, when you translate them, it takes a phrase or a a couple of sentences to actually give the meaning of a particular word. Well, with baptism, the translator said, this is too controversial. We're just going to take um, the, the words um, bapto is the, the, the root word or um, baptizo or baptisma, depending on what form it is. And we're just going to make up a new word called baptism and we'll let everybody decide what they want to believe and we're not taking the heat. And we have several of those. And I, I'll just give you a couple of examples. We get the English word angel from the Greek word angelos, literally means a messenger. So when you read in the Bible and you see the word angel, you need to look at the context, excuse me, you need to look at the context because not everywhere in the Bible where you see the word angel does it mean a heavenly creature. Sometimes it actually refers to pastors are angels because they're messengers of God. Sometimes it refers to disciples because the disciple is a messenger of God. So you really have to, you know, it's the old rule, context is king. Uh, And that's part of the reason that the translators translated angelos, angels, because they didn't want to take a stand. You know, sounds like a lot of modern Christians. Um, Christ, we get from the Greek word Christos. Uh, Deacon, we get from the Greek word diakonos. And baptism we get from baptizo or baptisma. Now, the, the actual Greek word here, the, the, the root of it, if you get away from the Bible, you just go to the Greek language and you see how they use the word baptos or bapto. It, it is a process or it's, it's used to describe the process of dyeing cloth. That's part of the reason that I believe, and as a church we practice, immersion. When you... When you baptize a cloth, you have whatever color the cloth is, you have the vat of dye, you baptize that cloth, you put it in, and when you pull it out, it's a new color. We still do that today. We baptize cloth to change its color. That's what this, it means to dip repeatedly, to immerse. Um, It can also mean, in certain contexts, to cleanse. can also mean to overwhelm. If you think about it, if you take a cloth and you, you baptize it in dye, you are overwhelming it. You are changing it. To be overwhelmed means I have lost control. If you describe an emotional overwhelming experience, it's something that happens and you cannot control your emotions. You just break down or you fly into a rage or whatever emotion it is you're experiencing it goes to an extreme and you have no control over that emotion. That's overwhelming. Well, so there are times when we get baptized, especially in the Spirit of God, where you can get overwhelmed. It's where we get, you know, people fall out in the Spirit. Now, some of that is just people getting excited. Some of it is just people going with convention. You know, if you're charismatic and you get prayed for and somebody lays hands on you, you got to fall down. Well... Not necessarily. Sometimes it's God. Sometimes it's the flesh. But there is a genuine even when you have the non-genuine. The non-genuine never means that there isn't something genuine that that can and does happen. 
But for our purposes, we're, we're looking at this process of baptisms. It represents being immersed or being flooded and overwhelmed with something. We're going to look at their three specifically. Like I said, water baptism we'll look at next week. But today we're going to look at salvation as a type of baptism, getting saved. It is a baptism, and I'll show you that from the scriptures. And we're going to look at getting baptized with or in or of the Holy Spirit. You can use any of those uh, conjunctions, adjectives, whatever they are. Amen. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. This is where I, I, I get the description that being born again is a type of baptizing. It says here in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, speaking of the Holy Spirit, it says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, have all been made to drink into one spirit. This is talking about the new birth experience. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit takes you and remakes you. Remember, and we're going to look at this in a second. We become brand new creatures. We, are, we become beings that have never existed before. That's our spirit, our inward man. And when the Holy Spirit does that, the Holy Spirit places us in the body of Christ. Now, just briefly, the body of Christ and the church are not exactly the same thing. The body of Christ, the church, well, let me give you an example. My father and mother are in the church, but they're not part of the body of Christ because they're both have died and they're both in heaven. The body of Christ only exists on this planet. We are his ears, his eyes, his mouth, his hands, his feet in the earth. When you die and you go to heaven to wait the return of Jesus, you, you are still part of the church, but you are not part of the body because you, if, you don't, if your body is, is not living, you lose your legal right to be on the planet. That's why it is very dangerous for, and I've had Christians get caught up in this, where you get over into spiritism and, well, my, my dead husband came and visited me. And spoke to me. No, he did not. Now, spirits will come and they may speak to you and they may say, I'm, I'm the spirit of your dead relative. But those are demons and you need to resist them. Because when we die, the Bible says, there is a, there is a point in a man wants to die and then stand before the Lord. If you die in Christ, you die, your spirit goes to heaven, your body goes into the earth. And you don't come back to the earth until Jesus comes back to the earth. I won't charge extra for that one. Now, there is a principle in Bible interpretation called first events. When something happens for the first time, it sets a precedent. I want to go to John 20 because this is the first example we ever have of, of anyone being literally born again. Except for Jesus. Jesus was born again. He, he died, he became sin, and when he came out of the grave, he was born again. He was born back into righteousness, back into um, um, the, his body. It says he is the firstborn among many brethren. But for people other than Christ to be born again, it's represented here in John 20. We're going to start with verse 19. This is after the, the resurrection. The disciples, some of the ladies have seen the risen Christ. They've come and told the disciples. They don't believe them. They're all in, in, in the um, upper room, they think. They're locked up. They're scared. It says, verse 19, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews. These guys were locked up, had the doors locked, barred, because they're afraid they're coming after me next. At that point, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. First commissioning. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
So when, when we see this, and, and, and I have heard, I've listened to a lot of sermons in the last couple of weeks preparing for this, and I've had a lot of ministers, a lot of pastors that make a big deal about whether the, the, the word is in the spirit, with the spirit, of the spirit. I'm going to be honest with you, you don't want to get too strict with grammar rules. And if it has this particular word in this particular part of, you know, part of speech, it means this. The, the Bible mixes up their parts of speech in all of this. And here he says, receive the Holy Spirit. We just read, Paul said it in 1 Corinthians, when, the, when you're born again, the Spirit baptizes you in the body. This is not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. These guys are getting born again. They have never met the risen Christ at this point. No one has. Not to get born again. And he breathes on them. This is really reminiscent of, of when God created Adam in the garden. He created the body. He stood the body up, just like we talked several weeks ago about Ezekiel's dry bones. Ezekiel prophesied to those bones. They came together. They gathered flesh. They gathered skin. And they're standing there fully formed and dead as a hammer. Well, these guys are standing before Christ. They're walking, talking, breathing, eating, and they're dead spiritually. And Jesus said, because they've already believed on him, they now can see him. They know that he is risen from the dead. And he says, you've met all the qualifications. And he breathed on them and they were changed. They were baptized into the body of Christ. But notice what he does also. He gives them authority. He said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now you can take that scripture and run off and create a thousand nasty doctrines. Basically what Jesus is saying here, I'm putting you in my spot. You're going to represent me. You have my authority. He's going to tell them later, you have my name, you have my anointing. You have my position. You're seated with me. It took Paul to figure that one out. You're going to be, you are seated with me in heavenly places. So when you speak, I'm speaking. Man, that is some kind of responsibility. That's why the Bible says in several places, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. That's not talking about cussing. That's talking about saying I'm a Christian and not walking the walk. When you say I'm a Christian, there are responsibilities to that. I've said it dozens of times here. Growing up, my mama used to look at my brothers and I, and she would say, Robert's boys don't behave that way. And we would look at each other like, dear God, mom's senile. Of course we behave this way. Why would you be yelling at us if we hadn't behaved that way? What she was trying to impart to us was we had a heritage. We certainly weren't acting like that heritage because my mom's heritage had us behaving here and I was behaving here. I was much lower than what her expectations were. But she kept impressing upon us, you have a heritage. And even more so through God. We have that responsibility. We have that authority. Why? It starts 2 Corinthians 5, 17, very familiar. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When you get saved, you are brand new on the inside. You have never existed and you don't have a history. The typical question, well, do you believe that Hitler could be saved? If Hitler would, would have believed and confessed with his mouth, then yes, he could be saved. There are no sins that cannot be forgiven. The problem was Hitler had so embraced evil and, and, and you don't have to get near as evil as Hitler was with your actions that the thought of salvation never even entered his mind. It's part of the problem of having the attitude, well, I'm just going to go out and sow my wild oats and have my party and have my fun and when I get old and I'm near death, then I'll confess Christ. You get to the old age and you've just, the Holy Spirit's not moving on you anymore. He doesn't draw you because you've rejected him and rejected him and rejected him. And he said, okay, you can have, you know, you've decided this is the way you want to go. I'll let you go. And you have no desire to get born again. That's why it is such a dangerous thing when the Holy Spirit moves on you for anything. It's exactly what we said a minute ago. Sometimes baptism means you get overwhelmed. 
God starts dealing with you to do this, do this, do this. Don't ignore those things. It grieves the Spirit of God when we ignore what He's impressing us and leading us to do. We need to act on that. Amen? Galatians says the same thing. Galatians 6.15 For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. He's saying, I don't care where you came from. We've already read it. It doesn't matter whether you were a Jew or a Greek. Your natural heritage doesn't matter to beans. And I, I love the genealogy stuff. I don't have time to go mess with it, but I, I love reading it. I've got a cousin. She's traced my mom's family back, I don't know, 300 years, something like that. My, my cousin that started it, she's passed away now, but she said, you know, if you trace your, your lineage back far enough, you're going to find an admiral and a horse thief somewhere. Because when you get back a few generations, you spread out pretty wide. And you're going to have some relatives you're real proud of, and you're going to have some that you're a little embarrassed about. Because just keep in mind, there are some of your relatives that are a little embarrassed about you. <laughs> we all have that, that tendency. Amen? What Paul's saying here in Galatians, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you can trace your lineage back to the Mayflower. It doesn't matter if you can trace your lineage back to, to Joseph. That's not what's important. What's important is are you a new creation? Have you been baptized into the body of Christ? We have a brand new position. We have a brand new identity. Revelation 2.17. This is, is, is the Spirit talking to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That right there tells me i got to be attentive to this and not all Christians are attentive to these things. He said, if you've got an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit's saying. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. When you get born again, you get renamed. And only God knows your name. You have a brand new identity. Now, if, 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 I, get, if I go home today and I get, you know, as I sometimes want to do, my foot gets a little heavy, and I get that wonderful feeling when you see those little red lights in your rearview mirror and you think, oh, wow, this one's going to cost me. As soon as that policeman walks up to my window, what's he ask? I want driver's license. I want registration, proof of insurance. Why does he want my driver's license? Well, first of all, he wants to know, am I legal? But even more than that, he wants to know who I am. He wants to see a picture and a name. So he can, marry, so he can look at the picture and look at me, make sure I'm not faking it. That I've just got a fake ID. And then he's going to go back and he's going to plug into his computer and he's going to put my name, he's going to put my license number in, and he's going to run and see, has this guy got any records? He got any warrants out for him? Anybody looking for him? He wants to identify who I am. Now, I have some identification. You can go back. Um, I just re rejoined a, a ministerial association a few months ago. And... The modern times, I had to send in a check, send in a permission slip that they could go to. I'm not sure this is a national thing, so they may have done it either through their local police or through the FBI, but they did a nationwide um, search on me to see if I had a criminal record. What's my criminal past? And they're going to look down through there, and they're going to see a whole bunch of speeding tickets. Because I, my, my family nicknamed me Leadfoot. And until I finally learned that, you know, it not only costs you when you get the ticket, it costs you when the insurance company says, well, there are penalties for driving fast. And eventually you learn and you slow down. Because you realize that, yeah, I'm, it not only cost me $170, all it did was get me there 30 seconds early. Anyway, fortunately for me, that's all they see is speeding tickets. But in my past, there's a bunch, or a whole lot, more than I care to think about. But when God looks at me, he doesn't care about that. He doesn't see my mama and my daddy. He doesn't see my grandma and my grandpa. All he sees is that new creature on the inside of me. And he looks at me and he says, you look just like my son. 
Well, if I look like, if I meet somebody that looks like my son, I'm, I'm inclined to like them right off the bat. I meet guys every once in a while and, you know, we'll introduce ourselves and they'll say, my name's John. I say, well, you must be a nice fella. You just have a great winning personality. And they'll look at me like, why? Because that's my name. I just identify with people. We've got the same name. There's an identity there. Whether we're alike at all. When God looks at us, he says, this is my child. That's our identity, and that's how we need to, over, to, to look at that. Now, Revelation 3.12 says something very similar. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. God looks at us and he says, I don't care who you were, now you're my child, here's your new name. Now, on both of these, to the churches we just read, he's put the, the qualifier though, he who overcomes. And I've had a lot of people tell me, yeah, but I'm not an overcomer. I'm just beset by sin, I can't control my lust, I can't control my desires, I'm a sinner. Well, this is John, the apostle, that's writing this. Let's back up to 1 John 5.5. 5. This is John. what John says about overcomers. He says, Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Being an overcomer doesn't have anything in the world to do with your behavior. It has to do with your standing. Are you in Christ? John declares right here, Who is it that overcomes the world? The person that believes that Jesus is the Son of God, a believer, a Christian. If you are a Christian, God looks at you and He says, why are you behaving this way? You are an overcomer. It's a status. It's a position. It's not a behavior. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't need to act like who we are. We need to hear in our head what my mama used to say. Christians don't act this way. Well, I'm a Christian and I'm acting this way. That's not what he's meaning. He means you are called to a higher standard. And, our, and we need to, to do our best. You'll never be perfect. Get over it. But when you find yourself out in the middle of that muck and mire, just run to 1 John 1, 9 and say, Lord, don't know how I got here. Yeah, I do. I got here because I chose to get here. I don't want to be here. I repent. Cleanse me. It says he's faithful and he will cleanse you. Amen? Let's look back at, um, well, Galatians 2.20. This does apply. This is Christ's standard for us. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That has to be first and foremost in my mind. I'm a Christian and I have to live the way that Jesus would live through me. I never liked those little bracelets, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? Because I'm not Jesus. But it is an attitude that you need to have. What does Jesus want me to do in this situation? And, and the reason I didn't like those bracelets was because it, it became an excuse for being a namby-pamby, you know, never express uh, an opinion, a strong opinion about everything. And Jesus had some strong opinions and he addressed some strong opinions, especially to religious people that were putting yokes on, on normal people's back that they wouldn't carry, but they didn't have a problem making you carry it. Those people he got vicious with. In fact, there was one, one time when he went into the temple and he sat down and it says he wove a cord he did not walk into the temple and lose his temple temper. He walked into the temple and he made a whip. That took time. And then he got up and he kicked tables off over. He beat people. He shoved people. He knocked people down. This is the meek and mild Jesus. People are shocked when you tell them that. Oh, Jesus would never behave that way. Well, read your Bible. He did. He was attacking religious people who were cheating ordinary people and keeping ordinary people from the one true God because they were greedy. And unfortunately, it still goes on today. 
Now, Jesus said this at the end, John 10, 28 through 30. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. This baptism, when we get baptized into the body of Christ, is a permanent baptism. It says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. We need to have, and, and I'm, I'm not, I've said it a thousand times, people tell me all the time, you believe in that once saved, always saved. No, I do not. There are ways to get out of the body of Christ if you want to get out of the body of Christ. But there are, you have to be an extremely mature Christian and it has to be an act of faith. You get into the body of Christ by faith, you can theoretically get out by an act of faith. And I know I've had people say, well, why would you ever want to? Well, why would Lucifer ever want to revolt? You would think he's seen God. He knows he can't win, and yet he did. And there are people who, they know the power of God, they know the reality, and they make a conscious decision, I don't want this. I would rather follow the devil. And I believe it is possible to get out. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about, yet nobody's taught you. You're still a child. And unfortunately I meet, I meet people all the time they've been Christians 20, 30 years and they don't know a thing. They have been taught nothing. It's like they've been locked in a closet and starved their entire Christian life and they're this emaciated little squirt of a Christian who has no strength, who has no ability because they don't know anything. They don't know who they are in Christ. They don't know that they have authority over the devil. And so they just, they, they're, they're wishy-washy and they just go with the flow. When you are that way, the devil cannot snatch you out of the hand of God. You can't operate in enough good works to get into the body of Christ. Once you're in, you can't sin enough to, that God will reject you and throw you out of the body of Christ. It's faith in and theoretically faith out. But you're not going to, God will, you will never get to the point where God says, I don't want you anymore, you're too dirty. Look at Zechariah, the book of Zechariah. The high priest Joshua comes before the throne of God. And God says, and he's, the scripture is very clear. He is covered in manure. He has been out working. The high priest is supposed to come in totally clothed and, and holy. And yet... He comes in filthy and God says, give him clean robes. Take that dirty turban off his head and put a clean turban. He said, change, I'm going to change the way you think. Leslie, can you put that <clears throat> diagram up? This is, you know, Hebrews says that all of the Old Testament is given for our admonition and for our learning. One of the things that we see, this is a, a, a diagram of the tabernacle of Moses. The temple in Jerusalem had the same basic plan. But this is a perfect outline of how we progress as a Christian. The gate there, there is a, that black outline on the outside is the, 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 a, um, a curtain. And you could not get through. If you came through any way, it's what Jesus says, there are those that come into the sheepfold except through the gate. They are thieves and robbers. If you came any way but through the gate, you were a thief and a robber. You could not come to God that way. But if you came through the gate, it required something of you. The very first thing it's, it requires you is the altar of sacrifice. You have to come and offer blood. That's salvation. We come into God's presence and approach God through the blood of Jesus. We are baptized into the body of Christ by the blood of Jesus. We are covered in that blood. That blood covers our sins. We are immersed in it. It, it, will, it will wash you white as snow. But if you try to go beyond that point without offering blood, death awaits. But now I'm, I'm covered in the blood. I'm a brand new creature. What's the next one in? And this is kind of oxymoronic. Wait a minute. I've just offered blood. I'm pure. I'm holy. I'm a new creature. And yet I've got to go to this brazen laver. It's a big pot full of water and I've got to wash. I thought I just got born again. I thought I'm pure and holy. 
You are on the inside, but on the outside, you still got some dust and dirt and manure. And, you know, I don't mean to get crude, but I grew up on a farm. You walk around, you know, the old, the old saying, you know, when I finally got out in the real world, I still had mud between my toes. That's because you walk around the barnyard and it's not just mud. You have to wash. Even after you're born again. That's what 1 John 1, 9 is about. When you confess your sin, that's not the first time God knows about your sin. But that's when you get out from the penalty and can come back into the service. You have to go there and wash. Then you can enter into the holy place. Now in the holy place, that's where we live. We have the candlestick, which gives off the light of God. We have the table of showbread. We consume the bread of God. Jesus said, I am the bread. I am the manna that, that God served in to the, to the uh, Israelis in the wilderness. And then we commune with God at the altar of incense, which is, are the prayers of the saints. That's where we live is in that holy place. But remember, right there it says the veil. In Moses' tabernacle, in the temple, there was a veil. But when Jesus resurrected, it says that that veil was torn from the top to the bottom. And you have to understand, that veil was about four to six inches thick. It was multiple layers. You know, I used to, 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 for a while there, I used to hang out with a few different times with the power team. Now, the, these guys in the power team, they're big, big boys. And we had a couple that they would, you know, their thing was they would tear phone books. And there was a little trick to it. <laughs> Even with the trick, I couldn't do it. But the, the trick to it was to break the spine, and then it was easier to do it. But even there, most people can't do that. That veil, humanly impossible to tear it. You're not going to rip it, grab it, and rip it. I don't care who you are. And especially from the top. Nobody's tall enough to reach up to the top. When it tore from the top to the bottom, it meant God ripped that veil, and he made access to the most holy place where you have the glory of God. The manifest presence of God. That's what we really need. Hebrews tells us, come boldly before the throne of grace. The throne of God has the glory of God manifested. When Ezekiel, or not Ezekiel, but Isaiah saw him, he said he was fire from the loins up and fire from the loins down. It means he's clothed in glory. What does is, what is that represent? Well, that is our second type of baptism. And boy, at the rate I'm going, we'll be out by five. That's the baptism with or baptism in the Holy Spirit. We got baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. But that's not all there is. We are called to do a job. And God's given us the authority. We've already seen that. But you also have to have some power to do your job. It's like going out here. I, I, I grew up on a farm we, I, I got intimately acquainted what shovels and pitchforks were for. And when you get inside a, 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 um, a stall where you've had an animal most of the winter, only shovels and, and pitchforks were allowed because there wasn't room enough to get any equipment. Now, a modern farm, they got uh, bobcats and other you know, tractors with, with scoops on the front, and you go and you scoop that stuff up, and you have some power behind you. When we cleaned out the stalls, it was one shovel full or, one, or the pitchfork one at a time. And it took hours and hours. But mama liked what that horse manure did on the garden. So we shoveled it. We hauled it. We threw it back out. And then we got to take the rototiller and go get it part of the ground. Hard work. If I could have gotten access to get a bobcat in there, I could have had that thing done in 10 minutes. No problem. Working without the baptism of the Spirit, the power of God behind you is like working with a shovel. You're going to have to work hard and you ain't going to get much done. You can accomplish a few things. 
But working with the power of the Spirit, you've got the glory of God working on you, and you can do things you can't do with a shovel. And you're going to get a heck of a lot more done with a lot less effort on your part because all you're doing is, is putting the motions in and the machine is doing the work. Well, it's the same way with, with working with the baptism of the Spirit. God does the work. We just pull the levers. And I don't mean that, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying God's a machine and we're going to pull the levers and force God to do anything. I'm just saying... Best example, the end of, of, of the book of Mark. It says the believers will lay hands on the sick and, and they will recover. Our job is to lay the hands, not to heal. I can't heal anybody, but I can lay my hands. If I have God's power working in me, and, believe, and remember, that doesn't say preachers. It doesn't say evangelists or pastors. It says believers. Believers can lay hands on the sick, but it takes the power of God. And if you don't have that power operating through you, it's just empty hands laid on empty heads. And not much gets done. And thank God we got doctors who can heal us because most of us got empty hands and empty heads. Baptism with the Holy Spirit. Keep that up there. But Matthew 3.11. Actually, take that back. Go back to the scriptures. I may have you pull it up here in a minute. Matthew 3.11, this is John the Baptist, uh, and here again, we're going back to first things. Remember, Jesus at this point, Matthew 3, Jesus has not gone to the cross, but Jesus is the perfect Son of God. He's going to be water baptized here, but it's not for the remission of sins. He hasn't sinned. Well, why does he need to be baptized? Let's read. Glad you asked. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, if you drop down to verse 16, it says, When he had been baptized, speaking of Jesus, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. John the Baptist just baptized Jesus, and when he brought him out of the water, he saw the Holy Spirit like a dove. It wasn't a physical dove. I've been to many services where people wanted to see bird feathers manifested. God's not a dove. The Holy Spirit's not a bird. He said he came. You want to get the metaphor? If you've ever been around birds, doves in particular, they're very skittish. You make the slightest wrong move, they're gone. They'll fly off. Jesus had the Holy Spirit descend him in the same way a dove does. If a dove descends and lands on your shoulder, if you want to keep him there, you're going to have to be really quiet in your movements. You're going to have to be deliberate. You're going to have to think about what you do. You can't just run off and do anything. You can't make any sudden movements. You can't just go jerk around and yell and scream and do anything you want. You're going to have to move with purpose. That's what it's, it's saying that the Spirit came on Jesus and he alighted lightly. Meaning that if Jesus had done the wrong thing, he could have grieved the Spirit and the Spirit, the anointing, that's what it was. It was the anointing of God that rested on him would have left. Thank God Jesus lived the perfect life, the sinless life, after this point as well as before this point, so the Spirit stayed on him. This is why Paul says it in Ephesians, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Because when the Spirit comes on us to do the work of the ministry that each of us is called to do, if we get off and do the wrong things, that's the, the anointing that the Spirit brings can leave us and we're left powerless to do what God's called us to do. We need to, we, when, when we read the first verse there in Matthew 3, 11, it says Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That fire is the glory of God. When you live, think about, about that, that diagram of the, the temple. And the tabernacle, when you're in that holy place and you're basking under the light of God and you're eating the bread of God and you're praying and you're fellowshipping with God, that, that glory will break out every once in a while and get on you. Now in the real world, in the tabernacle of Moses, if the glory broke out and got on you, you're dead. Um, David found that out. 
And David said, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but I'm not taking you, I'm not taking this ark anywhere. And he, he parked it, went home, sought the Lord about it. Why? Because they weren't doing things the right way. And the glory destroyed them. The same glory that will empower you to work for God will destroy you if you're working counter to God. And Christians can go both ways, unfortunately. This is why Psalm 51, this is a, 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 one of those scriptures that is terribly misquoted and misapplied. Starting in verse 10, Psalm 51, 10, it says, this is David speaking. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. I've heard people quote this and say, this is proof positive that you can lose the Holy Spirit. You can lose your salvation if you misbehave, if you sin. That's not what it's talking about. David's talking about, first of all, David couldn't lose his salvation. He wasn't saved. You can't be saved in the old covenant. Jesus hasn't come. You can have your sins covered by the blood of bulls and goats at that altar of, of or, um, the, the brazen altar where they burn the, the bodies of the sacrifice and they pour out the blood. But that only covers your sins. It doesn't get you born again. So David was never saved, but David was anointed to be a king and a priest. That's why he wrote almost half or more of the Psalms. He was a priest and a king, very rare. But he had an anointing to do what he did, and he did not want God to remove that anointing. He had watched Saul. Saul got so cocky, he built a statue to himself. He said, look at me, I'm the king. And God said, no, you're not. Brag on yourself, I'll remove your anointing. It's one of the reasons he hated David because he saw that anointing that left him and it jumped on David and he did not like that. He knew when he saw that anointing, I'm not king anymore and that little boy is going to be and he was jealous and he did his best to kill him. That's what it's talking about. I want to live so that I don't lose the anointing of God. I've got a job to do. I've got, there are people out there that need to be saved. There are people out there that need to be healed. And if I don't have the power of God in my life and on my life, I can't minister to them. Is it the, the baptism of the Spirit is about ministry. Um, the proof of it, John 2, 11, this is the, 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 the first big activity after Jesus was baptized where he, he uh, turned the water into wine. It says, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. You, you look, watch some of the modern movies about Jesus. They will always use the Gospel of Thomas as their source. And they'll have Jesus healing birds and resurrecting animals as a child. None of that happened. Jesus did no miracles until he was baptized with the Spirit. He was the perfect, sinless Son of God and had no miracles and no power in his life other than to walk in perfect holiness personally. But he could not in, and, and did not minister to others because he didn't have the anointing to do it. And until he got the anointing, he knew, I'm not going to try that i got to wait for God's timing, and when God says it's time, and it comes through the baptism of John, now it's time, now I will anoint you, and buddy, in the last three years, he lived 30 years with no miracles, and in three years he had a bunch. Why? Because he did it God's way. Now, how does this apply to us? I'm going to have to do this very quickly. 1 Corinthians 12, and, and hopefully sometime we can... I can go back and we can do an in-depth study on this, but I'm going to throw this out real quickly. If you have questions, come see me. But I don't have time to really go through it and, 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 and um, describe it today. But in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 1, this is Paul speaking. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, if you notice, gifts is italicized. It means it's not in the original scriptures. What, he, what a, a more accurate reading of that would be, now concerning spiritual things, or concerning spirituals, plural. Brethren, he's talking to Christians, I do not want you to be ignorant. 
You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols. Dumb idols doesn't mean they're stupid. It means they can't speak. However you were led. Therefore I made known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. No one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 4, he's going to start talking about the ministry gifts. He says there are diversities of gifts but the same Spirit. He mentions that topic right there in verse 4. He is not going to talk about the gifts of the Spirit again until he gets to verse 12. When he talks about the gifts of the Spirit, he's talking about the pastor, the, the, the evangelist, the prophet, the apostle, and the teacher. The fivefold ministry gifts. He's not talking about the stuff between verse 5 and verse 12. Here's why it says that. It says there are differences of ministries but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Verse 7, he changes topics. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. What is he talking about, the manifestation of the Spirit? He's talking about God operating through a Christian. When we see what we, what we call in the vernacular the gifts of the Spirit... They're not gifts. If I give you a gift, if I, if I give Ronnie a gift, when I give it to him, it becomes his. He operates it. He decides what it is. I had someone years ago gave me a car. Signed it over, lock, stock, and barrel. As soon as they gave it to me, it became my responsibility. I got the tags. I paid for the insurance. I put the gas in it. I decided when it started and where it went. It was mine. Completely mine. God doesn't do that with His manifestations. In fact, if you read on, it says the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things. Notice this last phrase. Distributing to each one individually as he wills. If it was a gift to me, if God gave me the gift of healing, then I could go heal people when I wanted to heal them. I'd have the faith to, to operate in that gift. Now there are people that God will empower, and He does, God, I will tell you in the practice, I've seen that there are certain things that God will empower certain people to walk in more than other people. They just seem to have a knack for this kind of ministry. But it's as God wills. You cannot force it. You cannot decide this is how God's going to manifest in this service tonight or today. God will decide how He's going to manifest Himself. And when He decides to manifest Himself, first of all, He has to find a cooperative vessel. You can shut it down in a heartbeat. But if he has a cooperating vessel, he wants to manifest himself. He just doesn't find many people that will cooperate with him. Either through ignorance. Paul started it out with verse 1. Concerning these spiritual things, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. And this is probably the area in the church that most people are most ignorant about. They read it and they read it on the surface level and they never dig into it. They never think it through. They never think of the implications of what this says. And you have, this is something you're not going to approach um, casually and get anything out of it. But when God wants to manifest Himself, He will manifest Himself in these ways. But these operate, can we put that diagram back up there? These operate when you are living in the holy place. You are basking in the candlestick, the light of God. You're walking in the light as you have the light. John, the Apostle John talks about that. If we say that we walk in the light and we're not walking in the light, we're lying. He says, walk in the light you've got. If God's only showed you this thing to do, then do that. Quit trying to do other things. Just walk in the light. I remember when Gina and I were at Ramah, people would constantly be badgering Brother Hagin, will you teach us something deeper? Will you teach us something deeper? And he would look at him and smile and say, yes. As soon as you figure out how to walk in faith, I'll teach you deeper things. 
But God's called me to teach my people faith. And he was faithful. You could not budge that man off of faith very far. Now occasionally he'd get out and teach a little something, but he'd come right back and teach faith, teach faith, teach faith, teach faith. Why? Because that was his commission. That's what God called him to do, and he was faithful to do what God called him to do. He didn't want to try to walk out in somebody else's ministry. We need to have some light on our role. What's God called me to do, and I'm going to stick with what he's called me to do until he tells me to do something different. But in the midst of that, I have to be consuming Jesus on a daily basis. I can't get very far away from the Word of God. It's the bread of life. And I have to just eat it and eat it. We read it last week in James. It's not just those that know the Word, it's those that stay in the Word and feed on it and feed on it. Then those will be that are faithful and continuous hearers. Then they will be blessed in what they do. And then I have to have the altar of incense. I have to have some communion with God. Those are That smoke that came off that altar of incense represented the prayers of the saints. John says that in the book of Revelation. They're the prayers of the saints. I have to commune with God. When I do that, since there's no veil anymore, the power of God, the glory of God will break out and get on me. And when the glory gets on you, you can do anything. You can do anything God tells you to do. And you can get done in 30 seconds what might take you 30 years otherwise. But without the glory, you got nothing. And the problem is, we got people out here camping at the altar of sacrifice. All they ever want to talk about, and don't, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. There's nothing more important than the blood of Jesus. You don't get into the body without the blood of Jesus. But you need to go beyond that. I grew up in a church, and I thank God for my Baptist heritage. If it wasn't for my Baptist heritage, I wouldn't know the Bible. Because that's what they, I mean, it was, it's the word, the word, the word, the word. The problem was they were so locked into the written word that they did not allow the Holy Spirit to speak to them on a daily basis. If I can't read it in the Bible, it's not real. Yeah, it is. The Spirit wants to talk to you on a personal level. Now, you have to use the written word to judge everything you get on a personal level. And if you get very far out past where, the, where you've got confirmation from the written word, you can get into Weirdsville real quick. <clears throat> but I can't just camp there. I, it didn't matter. And, and we ought to talk about the blood of Jesus and the new birth experience. But when all you ever do is fish in a barrel, what are you going to catch? I grew up having salvation messages preached to a group of 30 people that were all saved. And they were amazed, that, especially the young people, that none of us grew and none of us were walking out the life. Why? Because all we ever heard was, you've got to be born again, you've got to be born again, you've got to be born again. Well, I got born again. Well, if you're not living things, then rededicate, rededicate, rededicate. Well, I did that for about 10 years and it got old. I needed to get in and get some glory on me. But they didn't know anything about that. They just didn't emphasize it. And I'm not, again, I'm not denigrating my, the, my Baptist heritage. So I thank God for it. But it's, it's, notice verse 7 at the end of it though. This manifestation of the Spirit is given to profit us. It profits us. You go on into to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It talks all about the motivation for all of this. I don't want the glory of God so that people will look at me and say... Wow, look at the glory on him. No, my motivation is I want to have the power to minister to people. If I can't meet the needs of people, what am I good for? I mean, let's just, you know, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Might as well just go on and die and go to heaven. If I can't meet the needs of people that are hurting, and we've got an entire planet of people, and I can't handle the whole planet. I don't even know I can meet the, people, meet the needs of the people in Southport, but I'd like to at least meet the needs of a few. But I can't do that without the glory of God on me. But my motivation is love. That's what the whole chapter 13 is about. If you're not doing it out of love for people, it's worthless. It's like having, you know, I grew up with, or I didn't grow up, but I raised two kids that... They played a lot of musical instruments, and oh, at the, towards the end, they got pretty good. But I had a lot of years of squeaks on the clarinet and squeaks on the saxophone. 
and banging the drums and hitting sour notes on the piano. And it was like, Lord God, I bought my son a, a pad that kind of muffled the, the, um, um, the drums. But I wish I'd have had headphones back then because you'd, you, you'd have never seen me. You'd have had to reach up and grab me because I'd have had headphones in my ears all the time. That's what you're like when you don't walk in love. But then you get to chapter 14 and it talks about how we do this. Let me go to 1 Corinthians 14. Let's look at verse 1. First thing Paul says here, speaking of, and he's going to talk about walking out these gifts. He said, pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Very clear picture. I want you to pursue, pursue this. I want you to desire this, and I want you to speak about it. If what you're pursuing and desiring doesn't affect how you talk, Back to last week, your words are important. Doesn't mean much. Verse 2. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the Spirit, he speaks divine mysteries. You speak in tongues, nobody understands you but God. Unless someone's there and they can interpret it. Verse 3, though. But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. When we prophesy, and, and let me just, I'm a charismatic, I'm, well, I don't know, it depends on how you define charismatic versus Pentecostal. People ask me all the time, well, what kind of Christian are you? It's like, well, I'm trying to be a Bible-believing Christian. Well, are you Pentecostal? Well, no, my wife wears makeup, she doesn't let her hair grow forever and wear, you know, long skirts all the time. No, I don't mean that. And what they basically mean is, do you speak in tongues? Well, yes, I do. But that doesn't mean I'm crazy. But what I want to do more than anything is prophesy. Why? Because prophecy speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. That's what I want. I, I, I pray constantly in tongues in my private prayer time. Because I don't know what to pray. I, I pastor a church, and we're not a huge church, but I can't keep up with your needs. I don't know what you really need. I know what you tell me you need, but that doesn't mean that's what you really need. So I pray in the Spirit constantly saying, God, show me what, what is the root. I know the symptom. Well, I know what they say the symptom is, but I'm not sure if that's the real symptom. But what's the cause? Because the cause is what I, how I need to address this, and I don't know it. That's why you go into Romans chapter 8. It says, all things work together for good. That is based on the scriptures coming up to it, where you're praying and praying and praying, and God's showing you how to pray. Different, different sermon. But let's look here. The edification, exhortation, and comfort. And I'm going to close with this. Edification, literally, that Greek word there means to build a house. It means to take a one-story house and add a second story to it. It means it's building you up. When you hear someone prophesy, if you don't come out with something added to your life, it's not prophecy. The word exhortation, it's literally the word paraclesis. It's one of the, the when Jesus says, I will send a helper... The Greek word there is paraclete. It's someone who pulls up next to you and speaks to you to encourage you. It literally, when, when you talk about encourage, encourage, the E-N means to pour into. It means to pour courage into somebody. I, have, I always have a vision of a coach or a commander on the battlefield, but especially coaches coming up beside somebody and saying, you can do this. You just got to, you know, guys running at the end of a marathon and the coaches jogging alongside saying, don't quit, you got it. You've got more energy than you know. You can do this. He's pouring courage into this person. We have enough people in this life that will run up next to you and say, you might as well quit. You've already lost. There was several years ago, there was a, a, in the Olympics, there was a guy running the marathon not only was he so far behind, and I think he had injured himself, the stadium was empty. They were turning the lights off. The, the officials were starting to leave when he finally came in the stadium. And no one was there to greet him. Guess what? He finished the race. Why? Because he was going to finish. 
He had courage. But sometimes we need somebody to pull alongside of us and encourage, pour courage into me. That's what we're called to do. We're called to prophesy, to exhort one another. And the last one, comfort, it's another para word, but this one is paramythia. Para means to come alongside. Mythia is where we get the, um, the, the English word myth. And don't think of myths in the sense of, you know, myths about Thor and Zeus and all the, you know, the pantheon of gods. It's myth in the sense of a story. I want to pull alongside someone and tell them and share with them a story that will encourage them, again, that pours courage into them. I have to come in and say, look, I see you. Let me, let me explain the end of what's going to happen here. This is the result of where you're going to be when you follow God and you keep operating in faith and you keep this, this fight of faith. That's prophecy. It builds people up, it, it adds to their life, it encourages them. And you just, you weave a story where they're the hero of the story. My kids used to love it. When they were really little, I, they wanted me to read books to them. Well, I'm an, I'm an easily bored person. And I got tired of their books. And one night I said, I'm not reading these books. You've heard these stories a thousand times. I'm not reading them anymore. Well, then tell us a story. Well, that started couple of years of me making up stories. And you know who the heroes of those stories were? Ryan and Tiffany. And they loved it better than the books. They never again asked me to go back to the books. And I realized sometimes you need to be careful what you, your mouth will get you into. Because after a couple of years, man, it was hard to come up with anything unique. But they wanted to hear stories where they were the hero. And I told them stories. I just made stuff up. Fortunately for me, my kids fell asleep pretty quickly, so I didn't have to tell long stories. If you've ever written, written, or written, if you've ever read the tales of um, uh, Tolkien, I forget the names of them now, um, the, the Hobbit and, and all of the, those that followed, Though, that whole storyline was him telling stories to his kids at night. He started telling stories and he wove this whole universe out of bedtime stories to his children. Um, that man told better stories than I told, <laughs> believe me. But I still, I got a thrill out of telling my kids, you are the hero of your life. You can do this. Ryan, you're going to be a gentleman. You are going to be a, the, the hero. You're going to be a great man. Tiffany, you're going to be a queen. You're going to be this, this vision that you have. When you look at your storybooks and you see these, the princess in the great dress, that's you. You have that capacity and you're going to do it. They ate it up. Well, that's what we need to be doing to one another. But we need to be doing it with the glory of God on us. It makes a whole lot more um, impact when God's empowering that story. When you're, 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 that story's coming out of a place where God's inspiring you and suddenly the glory of God's on your words. I have, and I, I, will, I really will finish with this one. I can remember a couple of times, my kids were teenagers. Now, if you've ever, if you've had teenagers, oh, Lord God, that you need the glory of God on your life. They normally don't want to listen to, to, to their parents. And we were dealing with some kind of situation, and I, I do remember this happened maybe two, maybe three times. And we would have the habit, doesn't matter where the conversation started, it never ended until we were parked in the carport, and usually with the car shut off, and it'd take a few minutes to finish. It always took longer than what our trip was. And I remember a few times where I knew, I could tell the moment I went from me explaining something to, I started prophesying to my children. And it wasn't, now thus saith the Lord. And I didn't start speaking in Elizabethan English. But there was an anointing on my words suddenly. And my kids, you, and the reason I knew it, you could have heard a pin drop in that car. And a couple of times what I heard, as particularly out of my son, Wow, Dad, that was good. Now, when your teenage son tells his father that was good advice, you know God's on that. What, what was doing it? 
I just, I, once I felt it, I went with it. And as soon as I felt the spirit lift, I shut up. Because I didn't want to mess it up. It works in your house. It will work with your spouse. It will work with your kids. It'll work on your job. I worked at, at, at a, when I was at Rama. I worked in a, a, a hospital. And we had 58 beds on this floor. And boy, a shift change, it was wild. People talking, yelling, not yelling mad, but you had to yell just to be heard. And it was chaos, organized chaos. But after shift change was over and things started to calm down, I always had a tape player. And I'm back in the early 80s now. I had Maranatha tapes. And I, you know, it, was, it was all um, instrumental music, no words. And I would plug my tape in and I'd, I'd hit it and I'd put it on quiet. I wasn't going to force anybody to listen, but I needed that. And I had one nurse. I've only worked in that, that department for about nine months. And when I decided I was coming back home after graduation, she came to me and she said, you know, when you first started working here, I despise that music you turned on. I, she said, I can't tell you the number of times I, I wanted to walk up and say, you need to turn that Christian blankety blank off. I don't want to hear it. She said, but I noticed that when I would work on shifts where you worked and that music was playing, there was a calmness on this floor that was not there when you weren't here and that music wasn't playing. And I thought, oh, thank God. That's what I was going for. I was thinking more of myself because I needed the calmness. When you're going to school full-time and you're working a full-time job, especially in a stressful job like a hospital floor, you need some calmness. But it affected everybody in there. Wasn't me, but it was the glory of God affecting people. Amen? That's what we need. We need the baptism of the Spirit. Tongues are involved, but it's not just about tongues. It's about eating the Spirit to where His glory and His anointing rests on you to do what He's called you to do, to be an influence on the world that you live in. And if you're born again, you're baptized in Christ. Once you get the baptism of the Spirit, you have the power to affect people in a positive way. You build them up. You put courage in them. And you help them to live out their story. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana. Or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.